This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hey there. Welcome to Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. I'm your host and podcaster in residence, Alice Wong. This season I'll be sharing five episodes from my podcast Disability Visibility highlighting disabled artists and curators, and connecting them with artworks in the museum's collection. Today's episode from 2021 is about art and technology with Lindsay D. Felt and Vanessa Chang. Lindsay and Vanessa are two lead organizers of the Cryptech Incubator, a fellowship program supporting disabled artists who are doing innovative work with technology. Lindsay and Vanessa discuss their curation of Recoding Cryptech, a multidisciplinary art exhibition at Soma Arts Cultural Center in San Francisco. You'll learn about how their collaboration and friendship started, what it was like curating this exhibit, some of the disabled artists that were part of the exhibit, and why cryptech, disability culture, and accessibility is more important than ever in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And by the way, you might think I'm a robot, but I'm not. I am using a text-to-speech app which is quite a performance in itself. And keep in mind the app may mispronounce some terms and names but it is what it is. Are you ready? Away we go. So, Vanessa, let's see. Uh, Thank you for being on my podcast today. Thank you. It's such a delight to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, why don't I have you both uh, introduce yourself? My name is Vanessa Chang. I am a writer and a curator and educator. I'm currently based in the Bay Area, but I'm originally from Singapore. And I work primarily at the intersection of art technology. I'm really interested in um, how art and technology impacts bodies um, and the ways in which that conversation can kind of feed uh, more interesting kind of exhibitions and conversations and writing and, and space in the classroom. So my name is Lindsay Dolish Felt, and I am a Bay Area native, also based in San Francisco. I am a lecturer at Stanford University in the program in writing and rhetoric, where I teach courses on disability, media, and technology. I have a PhD in English at Stanford, um, and my research looks at how disabled people shape conceptions of electronic communication from the Cold War era to present day, and how this little recognized history is preserved in contemporary American literature and science fiction. I identify as deaf and wear bilateral cochlear implants. Before I went to graduate school, I was a journalist. Um, I was actually the women's soccer columnist for ESPN. And fun fact, I also played for the gold medal winning women's soccer team in the 2005 Deaf Olympics. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) 
today we're talking about disability and technology and art and I believe it was like early 2019 where I first got an email from the both of you about an exhibit that you two were curating called Recoding Cryptech that was at the Silver Arts uh, Cultural Center in San Francisco and you know, this exhibit was there from January 24th to the February 25th, 2020. How did this collaboration between the two of you come about? Menachem and I have developed this beautiful relationship that started in graduate school at Stanford. And I actually can remember the first time I met Menachem, and hopefully my memory serves me Correct, but we took a class together as graduate students in the communication department, and it was essentially all about media studies. We had a really small, intimate class there, and we just, it was such a lovely, warm environment, and we just, I just really vibed with Vanessa's energy, and we had a lot of similar intellectual and shared interests. Really, the relationship kind of started there, and we started to collaborate on some small projects while in graduate school, we put together a panel for a media studies conference. We started a dissertation writing group together. We were constantly trading, uh, writing back and forth and talking and expanding our ideas with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, Lindsay and I's research interests really met um, in the way we were thinking about disability and technology and embodiment. My dissertation was about gesture and electronic media and art and movement. You know, as I really did the work on that project, and I like was just in discussions with Lindsay, who was writing her project. She can talk about that more on uh, disability and sci-fi um, in literature. I learned that it was a really crucial part of this history of technology that you can't really talk about the history of technology without talking about the role disability has to play in that. Part of my dissertation was focused on an artist who we ended up showing in the in the exhibition. It was just so amazing for me. And it was about urban space and drawing and street art. And um, I looked at the graffiti writer and artist Tempt. After he developed ALS, he started using this um, technology that he collaborated with a, a crew of makers and engineers to develop so that he could draw with his eyes. And so, you know, a lot of that work for me was really informed um, by that ongoing collaboration. And after I graduated and I started to do more curatorial work um, in the Bay Area in art and technology and learn more about the scene, it seemed to me like there was a really uh, important discourse about disability in the Bay Area that needed to be showcased and that there was room to really um, explore that in an artistic space. And so I ended up seeing at some point that Soma Arts had a curatorial residency and I was a little bit familiar with Soma Arts and I saw that they were really committed to interesting work that had social justice at its center. And so I saw this call and I was like, you know, this collaboration that Lindsay and I have had and these conversations that Lindsay and I have had and the work that I've been doing as a curator, like, I think there's a lot of possibility here. So got in touch with Lindsay and I said, hey, I have this, have this idea. What do you think? 
Tapos I was like, I am not qualified for this at all. I have no geotoyal experience, but I have a wealth of experience about disability and technology, and I have so many thoughts about this. And I never turned down an opportunity to collaborate mm-hmm. with Vanessa, who is absolutely brilliant and I think just brings out the best in me. So, and I hope I bring out the best in her too. <laughs> I oh, think. Sure. But anyway, so I, I thought it was a really exciting opportunity when we started to develop our initial proposal for what we wanted to work on during the residency. And we started to spitball a little bit. And um, I was thinking about a lot about my research during this time, specifically, again, this sort of discourse of how disability has fundamentally shaped electronic communication and technology throughout technological history, I'm sorry. Um, And, you know, I was studying and still continue to study the ways that disabled people hack, crib, and remake technologies for their own ends and and how these hacks get redistributed and appropriated into mainstream technological cultures. So my work is really connecting the role of disabled users and crib politics and the modern legacy of hacking and human-machine interaction. And I was really eager to think with Vanessa about how we could use the show as an opportunity to kind of create a platform to showcase those kinds of works um, and connect with a public-facing community rather than just an academic community. The theme of your exhibit, Recoded Cryptech, is something that resonates with me deeply, but I think for a lot of people maybe who are not disabled, for example, they have no idea what Cryptech means or just, you know, Crypt itself. So, you know, I'd like to take that just a moment to ask both of you, kind of, how do you define Cryptech or just, you know, what was the thinking behind the name of the exhibit and just the themes you wanted to kind of highlight? Well, technologies, and it, I mean, it's, it's a particularly resonant conversation to have in the Bay Area. You know, everybody uh, thinks about the Bay Area and Silicon Valley as this nexus of technology and technology having this world-changing impact. And there isn't enough reflection on what technologies do or what they assume. Technologies are not neutral objects, right? They're designed for particular bodies and identities, and they're a very poor fit with bodies that don't actually fit a norm. Yeah, and I can jump in and say, so we were thinking that along the lines of technologies that are catering to specific users, we wanted to sort of explode the idea that technologies about curing or fixing disability and instead centering disability innovation, that specifically disability-led innovation, right? Not trying to innovate so that people with disabilities are like passive recipients of these technologies, but are actually active makers and users and designers of those technology. And that's just like a reality of what we do as a disability community. That is so true. And I think there's a lot of misnomers about tech, just like the idea that who gets to create tech, right? Like this idea that, oh, you have to be a developer or an engineer or 
have a lot of technical skills, and that's simply not true. You know, that there are people who are creating and innovating and just doing a lot of things with technology or just, you know, that's not exactly like about coding. Like, there's just, I think, such a narrow idea of what technology is. And I think, especially with disabled people, they just have a much more broader, fluid idea of what's, what technology is and what, you know, basically what we do in this world that's basically not built for us is, you know, pretty much something that we do every day in terms of hacking. It might not be called hacking, but it is hacking. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Cryptech is everywhere. Yes. And that's something that we really wanted to highlight in the show as well, that we really thought about technology in a really expansive way. You know, technology is not just code. It's not just uh, your refrigerator. It's, it's really the various kinds of tools that, I mean, that really everybody uses. I mean, it's interesting. Sarah Hendren talks about all technologies being assistive, right? Because mm-hmm. they actually do mediate our relationship with our environment. Curb cuts are kind of technology. The, the whole built environment is technology. And so that's, that's how we were really thinking about, about that in the show, right? That technology is not simply just these tools, but they are these embodiments and manifestations of social and political ideas about who's using those tools and who they're designed for. And that to crip or hack them is to, to make them fit, as you were saying, these really, these bodies that they're not designed for. Mm-hmm. And I'll also add in response to your question about the, the title of the show, we were, we were very intentional about that and, and we thought very deeply about the critical importance of naming this show and we did wrestle a little bit with titling the show Recoding Cryptech because we thought there was a possibility that some people wouldn't understand what Crypt meant. But we thought, you know what, we can we can teach them through the language of the show, through the work of the artists. And that work is so important that we didn't want to shy away from that kind of language, that especially the, the political activism and the history behind that that's embedded in Crip. But I did want to sort of acknowledge that Karen Nakamura at UC Berkeley hosted a conference called Crip Tech in 2018. And that the title of that really resonated with us. So we saw the show in a way as like kind of building on that conversation. Mm-hmm. Karen is, was a part of the show. She was part of the opening night panel um, and we are we planning to work with her going forward. But Crip Tech is also short for a larger term called Crip Technoscience, and that's the term that kind of circulates in academic discourse, and it was coined, I believe, by um, Amy Homray and, and Kelly Bush, and it really examines this sort of concept, or puts forth this concept about how disabled people critique and alter and reinvent the built world around them, right, But and try to highlight that misfit, right, because this world is don't for non-disabled bodies. Yeah, and I just want to give a shout out to Amy because Amy and Kelly, uh, they co-edited a special issue, a Catalyst Journal on Crypto Science, and it's a fantastic issue. I actually got to write an essay for it about plastic straws. 
digital science. So I love how we all have these like introductions. That was such a wonderful piece, and um, I was really honored to have a piece alongside your book too. So yeah, I had a piece that same special issue about female hackers and and the telephone switchboard in James Titchie's The Girl Who Was Plugged In, which is um, a 1970s short story about a disabled female protagonist. So that was so cool to be alongside your your work, Alice. Well, it's just funny. It's just like uh, all these kind of uh, relationships and connections we're all trying to try to build this larger body of work, you know. And that to me is really exciting. That's, you know, we're all kind of in these spaces, having these, you know, conversations to really advance, you know, the ideas and the culture that we all are kind of intimately familiar with. Yeah, and I think, like, when we talk about crypt tech as well, community is really central to that. You know, a lot of this work is community-based. It's about these interdependent relationships mm-hmm. and the the way in which people are entwined and their impact on each other. So it's wonderful to hear how those entwinements are kind of actually playing out mm-hmm. you know, in all of these different spaces. Absolutely. And I think people like, you know, Karen, Dr. Bora, and just a lot of other people do have been doing work in this area as well. It's just been, you know, really informative and just really late so much groundwork, you know. I think that's also just something that I'm glad that you brought up as well. We're talking in early January 2021, which is about uh, 11 months into the pandemic, uh, at least in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was kind of curious about what you both think is especially significant about cryptech and disability culture and accessibility that's significant now and, you know, truly will be long after, you know, we quote-unquote recover from the pandemic. What are some things that you think, you know, are really important kind of aspects of cryptech that I think more people need to be aware of. I love this question, and I I wish I could be an oracle here, but I will do my best to kind of foresee what I think will remain. Um, But maybe I'll speak to sort of my hopes. I'm hoping that there will be increased awareness around accessibility and um, the kind of the exciting possibilities that virtual gatherings entail via, you know, Zoom, Google Meet, all of those virtual meeting platforms have really opened up a lot of possibilities for the disabled community to be present um, and to attend in ways that maybe they might have been um, constrained from attending before. So I think that's really exciting to me. I'm hoping that maybe we can move towards, we can sustain that by offering more hybrid models that value both the in-person attendance, um, but also offer and hold space for those who want to attend virtually as well, right? And I think there's some really exciting possibilities for that. We still have a lot of thinking to do Mm -hmm. about how to improve that, though. 
of course, there have been a lot of new challenges that have arisen through these virtual platforms. Um, I mean, I'm experiencing a lot of these challenges in a new way for the first time as a deaf person, where I have had to kind of go back and request captioning for my classes that I teach, which I haven't had to do in a long time because communication can be so glitchy, right? But I think if we build these things back into the platforms, then we can continue to move forward to more equitable communication platforms after the pandemic. And and what's really interesting and also frustrating for me is that so many people have been saying in the disability community, we've, we've been thinking about all of this all along. And why is it that we've had to go through a global pandemic to finally be asking these questions? So it's both exciting and frustrating at the same time. This is a great question because it kind of, it foregrounds this notion of community and like Cryptech again, right? Like there are all these solutions that are coming up that are great, but kind of imperfect. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you've seen the Zoom captioning. It's, (laughs) it's, it's a bit of a scene, (laughs) but at the same time, you get these, these community solutions, right? Like People are sharing transcripts with each other to try and mitigate that um, and address imperfect captioning. Sometimes people are also assigning other people who are not necessarily professional transcriptionists to do so. So here again, we're seeing people draw on community resources that they've been building for a long time, you know, to sustain and support each other in different ways. And these mutual aid networks that really recognize how some community members are more vulnerable than others. You know, I'm thinking about people who can't leave their their homes and using things like Google spreadsheets to uh, support each other, bring each other groceries. And that's, again, where I think we really keep needing to return to community for community solutions um, alongside technological ones, because they continue to be imperfect mm-hmm. in many ways um, and you know I think too we'll see coming out of this I mean are we, are we going to recover from the pandemic <laughs> I, I don't know I kind of hope we don't in some ways you know I, I really hope that we we learn you know from this year that we're not just like oh okay well everything's back to normal this will cause us to reflect on what's really worth saving and what's really worth transforming and what's really worth keeping. You know, so in terms of these kinds of virtual encounters, maybe what we can do is really think about hybrid models for participation, right? How do we have in-person and and virtual models? How can we have recordings and, and resources after an event so people can watch or listen at their own leisure? There's been a lot of discourse this year. I mean, there was even a piece in the Atlantic that cited crypt time as like the new normal, right? So how how can we understand and have a more capacious understanding of of technology and space and time that that we move forward from with this pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what I hope suggests again, it's not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take up quite a while. Uh, I think it's the idea that there's gonna be more co-creation and more, you know, opportunities for, you know, disabled people and technologists and just, you know, people within this uh, larger 
when we think of us the tech industry, for example, to really work on solutions together, you know, rather than just kind of taking from the wisdom and just extracting, you know, the work of disabled people, the culture of disabled people, and appropriating it. I think that's one of the things that I've noticed for a long time, is that the innovations and, you know, creations of disabled people really, you know, did not receive the credits that they deserve. And I think this is what's really important about exhibits like yours and just all these kind of scholarship is to really name and identify and document, you know, what uh, so many people in our community have done. And I think that's uh, that's an ongoing challenge. get back to the exhibits, I was wondering if there was any particular artist or exhibits in particular that was really memorable for you, and things that really delighted you about putting this exhibit together. She says, only just very early 2020, this exhibit was available to the public, but just, you know, in the creation of it, what were some of your fondest memories or highlights? So hard to choose. <laughs> there were so many different um, different pieces that were so memorable for different reasons, you know, and we had the opportunity to really collaborate with artists in different ways that were really exciting, that highlighted how creative the curatorial process could be. Um, I guess one that particularly blew my mind was uh, M. Eiffler, or Blink Pop Shift's prosthetic memory, um, which was a, a piece that used a bespoke artificial intelligence as a prosthetic memory. Um, M has long-term um, amnesia and is unable to create uh, long-term memories. And, and I, want, I want to do the piece justice because it's not just about the installation that was there. When you went to encounter it, it was like a desktop space with various kind of paraphernalia that you have on a desk and a projector. It had a binder with pieces of paper and a camera over it. And when you flip the pages of the binder, it would then project videos um, onto the table. And so what it was was that M um, and their partner had trained this AI with their writing practice. So as part of this life practice, I mean, it's an art installation, but it's a life practice. Um, and they have a four page a day writing practice. And that was the training material for the AI. The AI was trained on that. And then that was coupled with their video diary. And this archive kind of worked together to create this searchable, indexable memory uh, that you know, it was it's just an incredibly generous and vulnerable thing to put out there as an art piece. Uh, and I, I was just struck by how they put it together. And, you know, you'd have these different moments of encountering the work and some of the, the videos that you saw were just incredibly joyous and, and personal. And it would be M kind of trying on outfits at home or M walking in the park. Others would be M lying in bed, kind of struggling with, um, with chronic pain. It was such an interesting piece because 
you know, as they said, it was like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside mm-hmm. <laughs> than on the outside. You couldn't really see that. Um, but it really, to me, highlighted this, like, crip aesthetic, right? This, like, crip approach to technology. I'm sure you're aware of how problematic AI can be, right? And how so many of these machine learning technologies tend to reproduce systemic bias and racism. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a wonderful personal um, reclamation of that. Mm-hmm. And the way that piece came about was, you know, I have a prior relationship with them from um, previous shows that I've done. They had a different uh, piece called uh, Masking Machine, which was using machine learning as a project faces, like a kind of digital mm-hmm. makeup. And so I approached them saying, hey, we're doing this this crypt show. Do you want to be part of it? And they developed this piece um, in support of that. You know, we ended up nominating it for the Starts Prize, which is a European um, award in science, art, technology. And it was an honorable mention, you know, it was like top 10 uh, global prize and something that really became like visible and legible to a really large community. So I guess I would I would suggest that one would be one particularly memorable one for me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing with us. Huh? How about you, Betsy? I mean, all of the pieces resonated with me in, in such different ways, but one that felt a little bit more personal um, that just really took my breath away was, was Jaron Martin's Ancestral Songs, and this was a, a large-scale multimedia projection. It was projected by two videos and it took up the entire the longest wall we had in the whole gallery space it was Darren's first premiere of the work and so we got to visit him in his studio when he was conceiving of this and in a very early stage of, of putting it together and we were so excited by the opportunity to not only premiere his work but just even he invited us in to collaborate with him which was truly remarkable and um, generous of him to do that. So Darren is is an artist with the hearing loss. And so that book, Ancestral Songs, was about taking hearing aids that had been passed down to him through both ancestors and friends and um, through his kinship community. And he would take them to various spots, nature, that he loved, and he would turn the hearing aid on, hold it in his hand, and let it speak to nature. So the the hearing aid would feed back because it was not in the ear. And as someone who used to wear hearing aids for a long time, my twin sister, who has perfect hearing, would always be complaining about my hearing aids feeding back. And I was always getting commentary in these, your hearing aids are feeding back. So Darren turned this into a beautiful thing. He made the hearing aids converse with nature and, and just showed how you can kind of invert that relationship. And that just was a profound moment for me to see that. Um, there were some other components to that piece as well, where he created these um, stereoscopic viewers that you could look into. And it was a completely different environment. It was projecting a domestic environment, a small enclosed space. And he had these water glasses and he would put the hearing aids in the water glasses. You know, when you put your fingers around the rim of a glass and it creates that sort of sound, well, he would do that. He like played the hearing aids as instruments too. And it also created a sense of vertigo 
when you looked into the viewers, which I think kind of tied really nicely mm-hmm. into um, a side effect that a lot of people with healing loss experience. So it was just such a thoughtful piece that really kind of spoke to my own lived experiences mm-hmm. of healing loss. That sounds so wonderful. And I think this is, you know, to me, what is so different about exhibits that are curated by us, for us, that is, you know, still this exception, right? It's just, you know, I think this is still a larger conversation about museums and about just, you know, galleries and art spaces and exhibits, where there's still so many people kind of excluded from being able to, to put together these kind of shows. Curation and just, you know, museums in general be hacked. So to be, you know, more accessible for all kinds of people and what kinds of, like, you know, practices that you both learned to putting this exhibit together that you like to see, you know, adopted more broadly. We're, we're seeing a lot of work and discussion around this topic right now. Uh, there's just been a lot of interest in creating this kind of kind of access and and so i think it's the right moment to really have this conversation we'd love to see curators and artists really take up the mantle of access as central to the creative process as central to aesthetic ideation process and product because right now access is i mean there are standards you know you have uh, pedestal heights you have um, audio description you have captioning and these are all important and necessary Uh, but it usually comes like something that after the work or exhibition is complete and there's so many amazing possibilities for what can emerge when the artist or curator thinks about access as originating or underlying aesthetic or design principle of the work why wouldn't you want everyone to be able to engage with the work at its core aesthetic access is access like an, an art that communicates to everyone there are limitations to that You know, a piece is not truly accessible to everyone in every way, but there can be different kinds of artistic elements and it can in itself, access can in itself be an artistic practice. I'm thinking here of like Christine Sun Kim's work with captions, right? Where the captions themselves become this really fascinating poetic dialogue with her as she signs. Or, um, you know, a piece that we had in the show, uh, Kinetic Lights, Rebel in Your Body, which is a wheelchair dance performance, has the most extraordinary audio description, right? It's audio description as art. Like the language is poetic. The performance is um, is breathless. The, the voice rushes and rises, you know, as the performance crescendos, but also um, falls as it does. There's also work right now on alt text poetry. So these can be creative practices, right? And that's that's what I'd like to see more of, like actually thinking about these as creative and collaborative practices. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll also add to that and say other things that we love to see and something that we try to do in our show as well that got a lot of really positive feedback was to foreground touch and tactile engagement. Uh, which really is often pushed aside um, or deprioritized 
especially museum spaces, right, in order to protect the artwork, but art is meant to be engaged with, right? And so I, I really invite us to think more creatively about how we can bring touch into those kinds of spaces. Of course, you know, Georgina Cleach has done so much work around this, and I think it's really important, critical work. Um, but why not offer, find opportunities to offer more tactile sam- samples, right? Um, lead guided tactile tours that are open to, to everyone. Maybe we can we can ask artists to fabricate additional materials for users to engage with, you know, from from the beginning, right? So, and and multiple forms of that. So so that's one suggestion that I have. Um, I'm also thinking about instead of just having an accessibility coordinator at a museum, if if they even have one, why not train curators to ask these questions and to really invite those kinds of collaborations with artists from the beginning of their project, right, right, rather than after the project has been completed. So that really builds on that kind of ethic of interdependence and care that is so vital to disability community. Yes, I love all of these ideas. And I really hope that if anybody listens to this episode who's, you know, in the museum world or art world, just really take these uh, ideas to heart because, you know, this is all about, I think, making cultural institutions not only more accountable because really we're in an era where people are demanding more accountability in a lot of different ways, but also just, you know, museums be acknowledging right, their complicity and excluding people yeah, the history, and I think this is really part of this larger, broader, more, you know, difficult conversation that people need to have. So I really appreciate all of the things that you both shared. And as we wrap up this conversation, I want to, you know, ask you both about the future any kind of plans that you both have in the next two or three, five years? You know, what are you working on now that you can kind of share with us? And just things that you're both looking forward to as we enter the new year. From this show that we put together, we, we kept thinking and we were just so excited by the response, the positive response that it received. And we felt like our work was left unfinished, that we decided to start thinking about ways to expand on the show. One of our um, exhibition partners was Leonardo Isaac, and we decided to have a conversation with them about maybe building on that collaboration further. And so we got together, put our heads together, and developed a proposal for uh, a cryptech incubator that would essentially build on some of the same principles of the show, this idea around um, access, how we can implement that as part of an aesthetic process, full cycle, right, from the, the beginning of the artist's conception to, to the end. 
And so we put this proposal out, and we were really fortunate, we're excited to share that we received a seed funding from the California Arts Council for a three-year grant to build out um, the Recoding Cryptech exhibition. So it's officially called um, the Cryptech Incubator, and, and I'll let Vanessa pick up on laying out some of the details of that. Sure. So Leonardo, uh, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology is now the institutional home for the project. And Leonardo is a global think tank that's really dedicated to nurturing and cultivating innovative work in arts, science, and tech. Their model is this full cycle creative engine, right? It's about supporting a creative idea from ideation through incubation and to dissemination. So when we brought this idea to them, it's like, well, how can this notion of aesthetic access and cryptech work through that process and with their network? Because Leonardo has an extraordinary network. Um, and for now, it's grounded in California, though we have ambitions of taking it farther afield, depending on how it goes. So uh, Cryptech Incubator is a three-year project that really tries to rethink the creative design cycle through an accessibility lens. It's about creating this cross-sector, cross-disciplinary platform to support disabled artists and to create and collaborate on new media works like games or VR or AI. Um, it will encompass the full cycle of an idea from ideation. It has residencies, workshops, talks, presentations, exhibitions, and education. We're really excited to partner with um, a set of really um, committed people and partners who have amazing resources at their disposal that they're really interested in investing in the project. These include um, the Berkeley Disability Lab. So Kara Nakamura leads that. And so we'll be partnering with her to place a resident at Berkeley Disability Lab and to develop an idea um, around aesthetic access at Berkeley. ThoughtWorks Arts Residency. ThoughtWorks is a, a multinational corporation which has an arts residency and their model is embedding an artist in the organization and giving them incredible software engineering resources to achieve wild projects. So another artist will be embedded there. Santa Barbara Center for Art, Science and Technology is an independent uh, residency center in Santa Barbara, which has a its own media environment, including a haptic floor that artists, that you can code using Macs, like you would program sound, you can program the floor. So we'll place someone else there. Um, and Beale Center for Art Technology in Irvine. And so these are just the residency centers where they'll um, actually work on developing the ideas. We'll also, um, through Leonardo's network, they'll be giving talks and presentations and um, publishing the outcomes of the work. One of Leonardo's institutional partners is Arizona State University. So we're also creating educational content about aesthetic access that we'll put online and that we'll hope to really create a larger platform for. And here we'd like to marshal the uh, disability community and the artists and give them a bigger, mm. ever bigger platform, you know, to showcase these ideas. Uh, so ultimately, exhibiting the work, creating a special publication of Leonardo, which has a journal and... Um, just really trying to create a platform and a space for people to innovate, for disabled folks to innovate around aesthetic access and crypt technology and crypt new media art. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So if anybody wants to, to learn more about the updates about 
to the cryptic incubator, uh, where did it go? No, kind of did the latest. We are still working on getting the site up at Leonardo, but if um, eventually when you go to leonardo.info, we'll have a Cryptech Incubator site. We also have a website for the exhibition that will ha that has another link to the incubator, and that will be at recodingcryptech.com. Perfect. Well, let's see, Evadessa, I am so thankful for the both of you. I just, all that you're doing, all that you're building, you're just created together in community. It's a really wonderful thing, and I, it gives me hope. It gives me hope for the future. And thank you to you, Alice, for being such an amazing role model for the community, and actually you truly integral to the show in more ways than you know, um, and to the incubator, so we want to thank you as well. Yeah, absolutely echoing what Lindsay says, and it is... It's a privilege to be here and to be able to share this work with you. Well, I can't wait to see this incubator just, you know, launch and just, you know, hopefully change the landscape. And I think, you know, there's so much potential and it's really, really exciting. So thank you both so much for uh, being on my podcast today. Thank you so much, Alice. My pleasure. I love this conversation with Lindsay and Vanessa. Disabled people like myself who identify as cyborgs intimately understand the intersection of disability and technology. They are putting an important spotlight on the innovation and creativity of disabled artists. Want to learn more about art and technology? Check out Bay Area artist Rhonda Holberton's work, Best of Both Worlds, on what happens when the body is pushed and pulled by digital technology. Diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder, Rhonda's 3D scan of her body appeared to be fragmented and broken due to technical limitations. This took on a new meaning as her physical body made her feel broken which is something fascinating to consider. You can find an interview with Rhonda on the museum's website and YouTube channel. Also, in 2024, the museum will be showing some exciting new Cryptech acquired by the architecture and design team, including an Xbox adaptive controller, which allows players to build and rebuild custom gaming controls and the Usher Flex Run, a high-tech, high-impact running prosthetic made for amputees and prosthetists. Visit Raw Materials landing page for additional links to related works of art. While you listen along this season, please note that artwork locations can fluctuate. Be sure to log on to the SF MoMA website to check out what's on view when you stop by. This episode was written, hosted and co-produced by me, Alice Wong. The co-audio producer for this episode was Cheryl Green. Text transcript by Cheryl Green. Theme music by Wheelchair Sports Camp. See you on the flip side. So why you rapping so shitty? So tell me how the hell we gonna get it? Lord knows where I'm at in the